You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed are God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, a treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our Sunday Gospel Reflection brothers and sisters of the ICC here. Annie Mitchell, how are you doing? I am doing great, Father Hezekiah. How are you? I'm doing all right. The 20, getting ready for the 20th Sunday in ordinary time. Yeah. And still living, I would say, in the light of Pentecost, which really ultimately the change is coming in the liturgical schedule, the liturgical calendar and the heartbeat of the church. It's going to come, going to start around September 1st, really start to gain steam September 14th and following, which is the advent of the Advent season, which we don't normally talk about, but there is a preparation for Advent. And that preparation really begins with the, the Feast of the Holy Cross on September 14th. And, and everything kind of changes right there at the beginning mid-September, where we start looking more toward the coming of Christ in terms of his second coming, mm-hmm. which really the Advent season is going to highlight. And a lot of people don't think about it. We think about the, the, the Advent season as the incarnation, right? Preparation for Christmas. But, but liturgically, the church looks forward to the coming of Christ in glory and uh, his second coming in, in light of the incarnation, right? So the incarnation is a historical event, which tells us what's going to come. And so that's all going to change in September. My point of all that is right now, here we are, uh, July, August time period in which we are still living in the light of Pentecost. And so this, this text given to us, I do believe the church is calling out certain themes that the early church was facing and that we face in our evangelical mission. And that is, in the midst of all this, a disaster of relationships but within the family as well as within society. I'm going to take a look here in the Old Testament passages and the New Testament. So let's give this to the people. Annie, from Jeremiah, right? Yes. Our first reading for this weekend is from Jeremiah chapter 38. We will be reading verses 4 through 6 and then verses 8 through 10. The responsorial psalm is from Psalm 40. Our gospel this weekend, continuing through Luke chapter 12, this week we have verses 49 through 53. And our epistle is from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Okay, let's take a look at Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah 38. Verses four through six and eight through ten. They skip verse seven, which is unfortunate, but they do it because they think that you're not biblically literate enough to hear verse seven. Okay. So we skip over it. And maybe in the church's wisdom, she's right. <laughs> but but why don't we why don't we do this? Let's go ahead and read. I'm gonna read, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. I'm gonna read from my RSV today. 
oh, so okay. that we can get the verse seven in there. It's only not that big of a deal, but it does kind of flesh out a little bit of a question I know you're asking because I myself asked it, and that is, who is this weird guy, Abed Melech? But it's yes. very interesting. So <laughs> let's go ahead and, and take a look at chapter 38, verse starting with verse four, and then we'll go through 10. From, okay, you want from, me to read from, it from, from my yeah, Bible? From your Bible, good. Okay, so just keep in mind, folks, this is not the exact wording that you'll be hearing at Mass. Because at Mass, we're using the NAB, the New American Bible, right? right? That's exactly. the USECB's choice, which is not my favorite translation. Although, if you have it, just stick with it. Let's just, yeah. let's go. Okay. Okay. Verses four through eight. Yeah. Then the princes said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city in the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mire, and Jeremiah sank in the mire. And here's verse seven, which is what skipped. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So when Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in this king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Okay. Then we pick up. Then we pick up the reading. Yeah. yeah. Again, Abed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, and "This is why it's kind of unfortunate they skipped the verse because you're like, who? who? Abed-Melech." Yes. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. but go ahead. Verse eight. So it says, my Lord, my King, these men have done evil and all they did to Jeremiah, the prophet by casting him into the cistern and he will die there of hunger for there is no bread left in the city. Then the King commanded Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take three men with you from here and lift Jeremiah, the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. There you go. That's the end of our passage that we have before us. So let's jump into this, Annie, and uh, take a look at what's going on. Okay. So yeah, I wanted to start with a question that I ask my two sons very often. What's going on here? Like parachuting into the middle of the story. Like yeah. what did Jeremiah do that he's getting thrown into the mire of a cistern? I can only imagine you walk into the living room, right? There's mud on the walls yep. and right and flour on the floor. And you're it was right. one of the first like sentences that my older son ever spoke. Yeah. What's going on? What, here? what is going on here? So uh, what do you want to, what, what are you wondering about Annie? What, well, first of all, yeah. So sorry. Yeah. What, what did Jeremiah do that they're trying to throw him into this cistern in the first place? Sure. So we've talked a lot in the past. So I, if I sound like a broken record, it's only because I am a broken record. And in that salvation history is actually quite simple. And this, there's many stories, of course, like this in in the big picture but if you got the big picture then then it's always a matter of reference to the bigger events that we can start to understand the smaller events right the problem is we usually play russian roulette with our bible as i oftentimes say or we helicopter into mass when did jeremiah live what, what, what what's going on why are they throwing him in a cistern who's ebed melek well i don't know what can we get out of this text well that 
well, he's a prophet, so we know he's a good guy. He's thrown into a cistern, which is not good for him. So there's bad people around him. And then he's actually saved by somebody. So here's what we're going to gain out of the text. And that is, guys, don't worry. Even if somebody throws you in a cistern, <laughs> God's going to be on your it's side. Gonna okay. help you. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay. Yes. Maybe that is the application liturgically today that we can kind of gain some general lines, but, but really what's going on in the text is going to help us a little bit better. And then of course the context of Jeremiah is the Babylonian exile. So here's what I'm going to do for you. For those that want to do this with us, because we've done this before, but here actually a little bit more in, intimate in or, or jumping a little more into the text of Jeremiah that we haven't done before. And that is, you can take a look at Jeremiah 36, 37, 38. Actually, you have to start, if you're going to contextualize Jeremiah here, you have to start in chapter 34. Well, you can begin in verse one. Yeah, I see the, uh, the chapter title here. Death and captivity predicted for Zedekiah. <laughs> not good. No. Okay. Not good. So, so there you have it in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities and so forth. And then you can just, I'm just going to give you a few verses along the way in chapter 34 is critical. You can read it on your own from verse eight and following. Basically what had happened was that, and I said this before, they had refused to honor the Jubilee year. In fact, they had refused to honor the law of God as a, in, 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 in total, really. If, if we've been talking the last few weeks about how Solomon ended up having altars built to false gods on Mount, the Mount of Olives. And this is now just a, a few generations later. So the situation's gone from bad to worse. And they're not following the law of God. And one of the key laws is the law of the jubilee year in which every 50th year god's people were to grant release to all of their servants and slaves anyone they held in debt they would have to give them release so for example if i if my brother became poor he owned the land next to me and he lost his harvest and i went ahead and said look i'll save you but you're going to be my servant i'm going to take over your land all that was going to be restored to him every 50th year and to his family so that and what was the what was the the ultimate reason or goal of the jubilee year was so that god's people would live in his image and after his likeness granting release freedom from slavery as they had been granted release from slavery in egypt right the people of god were meant to be restored in the image and likeness of god and that is to be freed from the image and likeness of pharaoh they, they're not to act like the egyptians and so every 50th year, when things began to be like that, well, you're not to do it. And the release was again, they refused to do that. And we saw that actually back in what I'm going to, I'm going to keep my hand in Jeremiah. I'm going to flip my Bible back to second Kings. We're going to look at a few things in second Kings. So you're going to have to have your Bibles open to first and second or to Jeremiah and second Kings, both of them. And I'm just, look, I'm just going to flip here to actually first kings i apologize to chapter 10 chapter 11 i'm sorry chapter 11 which we've looked at before chapter 11 verse 28 in which i'll just tell you 
in which we find out that Solomon enslaved his brother Joseph, right? So jo Solomon already is not following the Jubilee law, right? So I'm, I keep my hand in First Kings. I'm flipping back to Jeremiah chapter 34, and we find out that ultimately Babylon is going to conquer Jerusalem. Why? Because the people of God refuse to follow the Jubilee year. And it gets a little confusing here because Babylon is now marching on Jerusalem. And now what do the powerful people do? They grant release to their slaves, which is crazy, right? You, you're going to be attacked by your enemy, and now you're going to grant release to your slaves. They were the ones that were going to be able to fight for you. No, they grant release to the slaves because they know they're going to, that they're, there's no hope left. The only hope is if they actually follow the law of God. So they grant release in chapter 34, and then they go back and take them back and put mm -hmm. them back into slavery. Verse 16, verse, verse, yeah, chapter 34, verse 16. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slave whom you set free according to their desires, right? And then, so the Lord's going to proclaim liberty to the sword, he says in verse 17. And the whole thing is going to go back from, from bad. Now, here's ultimately the question. What's going on? What's wrong with Jeremiah? Well, he's a prophet. And a prophet tells the truth of the situation, right? He says, in the face of what's going on around him, it's very tempting, right? To be like, well, let's appease the situation, right? It's okay. You got the, look, you got the high places on the Mount of Olives. It's okay to be a pantheist. It's okay to be a pagan. Just let's all get along. Let's all have peace among ourselves. But that's not what prophets have ever done. And a true prophet of God never does that. He always tells the truth about the situation. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. Look at chapter 35. I just highlighted a few verses. Verse 15. I have sent you to all my servants, the prophets sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way. And amend your doings. This is chapter 35, verse 15. And do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land, which I gave you to you and your fathers. Okay. In verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of the hosts. This is, this is Jeremiah speaking. Okay. Behold, I am bringing on Judah and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the evil that I have pronounced against them. This is the prophet speaking the words of the Lord, right? Okay. Then chapter 37 Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of, of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah. <laughs> Not good. Coming down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of Israel. Uh, thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army, which came to help you, is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, shall come back and fight against the city. They shall take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely stay away from us, for they will not stay away. For even if you shall defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans, who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. So Jeremiah's like, it's over. It's over. You guys are a bunch of heathens, and the Babylonians are coming to be destroyed, right? Coming down to chapter 37, 
verse 17. King Zedekiah sent for, for him and received him. And the king questioned him, that's Jeremiah, secretly in the house and said to him, is there any word of the Lord? Jeremiah said, there is. And he said, you shall be delivered in the hands of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah also said to the king of, the, king of Zedekiah, what wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Chapter 38, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword or by famine or pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have life as a prize of war and live. So, so Jeremiah now doubles down. He's like, don't stay in this heathen city anymore. You want to be saved? Get out and go get captured by the Babylonians. Go flee the city. Don't get captured by the Babylonians because you're going anyways. And at least you're going to save your life. Because if you don't do that, they're going to rain down fire and brimstone upon you. And you're going to die most horribly. Yeah. And so this is exactly what happens. Um, and then we pick up our text here. So what's going on? Why are, why are, are these guys who are advising the king? In fact, I skipped a passage, and I don't even know where it's at. I, you can read it on your own. It's right in here somewhere. It says, it, it, Jeremiah goes to the Zedekiah and says, well, where are all your prophets now? And, and the prophets he's speaking of are the false prophets who told you that Babylon would not conquer this city. Where are they now, king? Yeah. And so what's going on? So these are the guys who end up arrest, getting Jeremiah and taking him and throwing him into the pit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the context of what's going on. Jeremiah is speaking truth to power and they don't like it. And so they take the prophet, they throw him in the pit in Jerusalem and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> I really, I actually, I really like how the NAB translation is in this okay. uh, because he says, it says that Jeremiah was weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city. Yeah. It just sounds even more ridiculous in the NAB. It says, he is demoralizing the soldiers who are left in the yeah. city. Well, yeah, he's, he's doing both. He's not only demoralizing them, but by saying that they're, they're going to lose. But he's also telling all of those in the city to get out. Yeah. So he really is weakening their hands. Like they're looking around. They're like, hey, hey, Frank, don't go. No, God, we got we to gotta fight. Frank's like, I'm out of here. I'm listening to Jeremiah. He runs out <laughs> of the city, right? So, so there's all these people fleeing the city in the midst of what's going to ultimately be the, the, the sacking of Jerusalem. And you pick up that sacking of Jerusalem in chapter 39. You can read it on your own. But the most ultimately, if you want to know kind of the end of the story, it's not really the end of the story because Jeremiah ends up being saved. But the end of this particular story about Zedekiah and what's going on, take a look at chapter 39. Which, by the way, you can also read. In 2 Kings chapter 25, the two of them go together. 2 Kings is a historical book. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is the prophet. Jeremiah in his prophecy gives some historical details. Mm -hmm. Here's one of them. Chapter 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his armies came against Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, I'm going to come down to verse 4. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city by night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward Arabah. So, they, so the king finally goes, I'm getting out of Dodge, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then I'm coming out of verse to verse 6. The king of Babylon, well, he ended up capturing him. The king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah, 
at Ribla before his eyes. So the, Zedekiah sees his, his sons be slaughtered. And the king of Babylon slew this, the, the nobles of Judah, and he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, Ooh. bound him in fetters to take him to Babylon. So he does end up getting saved, and his, his life is saved. But the last thing that Zedekiah sees is the end of his reign. The last thing he sees is the end of his line. Yeah. Because he sees his sons be killed. Then they put his eyes out. So the last memory he has is that his line will never continue wow. in, on the throne of David. Wow. Yeah. Dang. So okay. with that cheerful thought. Yeah. Tell me more about this um, Abed-Melech guy. Abed-Melech. Abed-Melech. What sound is that? What what name does that sound like, Annie? Melek. Kind of, I, Melek sound, reminds me of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, right? We talked about yeah. that before. Melek in Hebrew is king. Uh, king. Melek Zedek, Melchizedek is Zedek is righteous, so he's king of righteousness, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, the the, the epistle to the Hebrews. In Hebrew means servant, so this is just the servant of the king. Oh, That's okay. all it is. This is his title. He's the servant of the king. This is not his name. And he's an Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. So he's in the court and doing this service and uh, apparently a faithful guy. Yeah. Because he knows what's going on. He sees what's going on. And among all the guys that are there, he realizes that Jeremiah is the only one's actually correct. And he's advising the king and he goes and becomes the, the, the savior of jeremiah and jeremiah's life is ultimately going to be saved and he's going to return to jerusalem after being captured by the babylonians and he's going to be granted freedom and he's going to come back to the city and write his lamentations the lamentations of jeremiah there's your context if you want to go in and jump in and really go swimming around in it second kings chapter 25 jeremiah chapter 38 39 maybe the chapters before it and so forth uh, and then you can kind of grasp what's going on there. Okay. So what is the point of this reading? I mean, what, what, what is the significance of, of this story for the life of the church? Well, that, for that, Annie, we have to wait to the New Testament because ultimately we can draw some of these maybe superficial, not superficial in a bad way, some themes from this and that is that the lord will will protect his people and though we might endure suffering even at the hand of our brother right those around us nevertheless if we're faithful to the lord and we speak the truth ultimately our salvation is not going to be found by getting in bed with the enemy right by going and cuddling up to the pagans and the the heathen but rather by speaking the truth in love which is what look jeremiah was a it was a fiery preacher we're going to see another fiery preacher in the gospel yeah fiery preacher but he always taught the truth in love and um and and he endured many persecutions because of it um but uh nevertheless his hope was in the lord and that's again to understand why, why the church is doing this we're going to have to look at the gospel text. Remember, we're living the time of Pentecost, in which the early church went out into a adversarial environment, right? The apostles were arrested. They were martyred for the faith. 
And they're having to ask important questions about the nature of their suffering and whether or not the truth is, can write, is, is more valuable, if you will, than the sufferings we endure in the body. And of course, the answer is yes. We are always going to endure persecution. The, the, those are on, that are working for the Lord, they're on the side of the Lord, they're within the family, are going to endure persecution because ultimately the serpent is going to strike at the heel, right? This is a problem that goes back to the very, very beginning. So don't be surprised when the modern media attacks us. Don't be surprised by abortion. Don't be surprised by all of the many attacks, even by those within the church. Because remember, as we're looking at Jeremiah, you asked me to give my homiletic uh, application. I'm going to do it right here. These guys, listen to this. I'm going to go back to the, the, the passage. In those days, the princes said to the king, Jeremiah ought to be put to death. Well, who are the princes and who's the king, right? They're the leaders of the people. So don't be surprised when the hierarchy within the church turns against those who are speaking the truth to power rather than standing for the truth they actually end up kind of getting along with the enemies of god that would be those who stand against the church and against christ those who are pagans and pantheists and so forth and they end up wanting to it's always temptation right Let's get along with our those around us, right? They're not going to hurt us. And that's exactly, you want to, there's your lesson. Chapter 37 is all happening again, right? The, the, those that are around the authorities are telling them, hey, they're not going to be bad to us. If you would just go and get along with them, get along with the Babylonians, you know, apologize to the Egyptians, you know, do all of these things to make yourself attractive to them. Then it'll all work out. But the prophet Jeremiah and all the rest of the prophets stand against that and say, no, no, if you don't follow the law of God or faithful to him and preach the truth in the midst of those who would persecute you, then ultimately you're going to have an inheritance, which we've been hearing about in these passages recently in the gospel and last, last week in the Old Testament also about, about the, what inheritance do we want? You want the, herit uh, the inheritance of the heathen? You, you're welcome to it. Yeah. But if you want the inheritance of God, then seek the higher things and come what may. Hmm. And that's where all of a sudden now comes into view the cross of Christ, which is yeah. going to come up in the gospel. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The cistern, the cross, your sufferings today are one reality, and it's the serpent striking at the heel. Hmm. Yeah, but we ultimately know who will be victorious. Annie, if we don't move on, we're going to run out of time. Psalm chapter, Psalm 40, yes? Yeah, I mean, it was almost like Jeremiah could have been singing this psalm himself. Yeah, well, he probably was. He probably was. In fact, we read this psalm when we go to Jerusalem and up on Mount Sion, where Jesus was, where his, part of his trial took place, and he was placed, the tradition tells us he was placed in a cistern, yeah. just like Jeremiah, mm -hmm. as a holding pit for him overnight. And uh, you can go there today. I mean, it's, it's not clear in the gospel that he was arrested. Well, what happened? What happened all during the night? Well, he's brought in front of uh, this guy and that guy. And in between, they got to put him somewhere, right? Yeah. And so in this particular instance, they put him in this pit 
uh, up there on Mount, Mount Sion. And we go there and visit. We go inside the inside the cistern with the institute oh, wow. people and 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 pray this psalm because not only would Jeremiah have been praying this psalm, Jesus would have been praying this psalm. I have waited, waited for the Lord, and He stooped toward me. The Lord heard my cry. He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the mud of the swamp. He set my feet upon a crag, and He made my firm firm my steps, and He put a new song into my mouth, a hymn to our God. And so certainly. While persecution is taking place in the life of Jeremiah, as it was in the life of the Lord, their hope was in something greater. Yeah. So uh, with that, let's take a look at the gospel. Really beautiful. Okay. Luke chapter 12 is where we are headed for the gospel. And uh, we are starting this weekend in verse 49. You ready to go, Father? Yep. Okay. Here we go. Luke Luke chapter 49. I'm sorry. I actually didn't turn my Bible when you said <laughs> Luke, Luke, Luke uh, no, not Luke. 12. Not chapter 12. Thank there you very are not much. 49 there is no Luke chapters 49. in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Luke, thank you, Annie. <laughs> Luke chapter 12, verse 49. 49. Okay, go ahead. All right. Jesus said to his disciples, I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided, three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father, a mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother and a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Nice Jesus. The end. Yeah. The gospel of the Lord. <laughs> but isn't that, that's kind of what my point going back to Jeremiah is that who are these guys around him? Yeah. It's his kinsmen. You know what I mean? I mean, in the sense that like this was the family that is in Jerusalem and they're against each other. They're against, they're against him. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you can um sort of contextualize all of this because i mean we've been going through this this final journey of jesus and everything that he's had to say and this reading is you know immediately following the one we heard last weekend which you know was about girding your loins and you had the servants that needed to be ready when the master came back and you know mm -hmm. you were either going to be lightly beaten or severely beaten depending on you know how much responsibility you had the end of that reading last weekend said much will be required of the person entrusted with much and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more so and then we we go immediately to this part Jesus said to his disciples I have come to set the earth on fire can you just yeah. sort of continue well, how does this sure. continue that thought we've been talking about this week after week Annie so again I apologize but going back obviously we're we've been a slow roll through Luke chapter 11 and 12, and we've said it multiple times, that the, that Jesus is in the, in the context not only of his apostles, but of the Pharisees and of the multitudes that are following him, right? We just, we looked at this last week, chapter 12, verse 1, there are thousands of the multitude that gathered together and they were trod upon one another. So there's a lot of people that are hanging around with Jesus, but there's a lot of people that are adversarial to him. And the, even though he's done all of these miracles, they're, they have not, inter they've, they've, they, they're, they're following the miracle worker, but they're unable to graduate to, to faith in the one who is 
doing the miracles, right? Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is fine. Says it's 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 up. It's too late. We're heading to Jerusalem. Either you're with me or you're you're not with me. And so all of a sudden, Jesus's talk gets very very in your face right and 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 in the context of family ties because the families are split now right one cousin's over here another cousin's over there talking with the pharisees right one apostle's here but there's judas in their midst every there's all sorts of divisions and people you know playing the chess game and jesus just kind of calls it out as it is right there's going to be division right your your brother over there who's talking with the pharisees and you keep going over there and like hanging out with him you're gonna to have to make a decision about what you, who your true brother is and so forth and that's kind of what comes up more and more as we've been getting more it seems like every week it just gets more intense right more every week it's more in your face and this one's a big one right it's really in your face because again the further we go the closer we get to the cross yeah both literally for Jesus and liturgically for us, now that I think about it, since we're marching toward the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You start to see, isn't that beautiful? You start to see the big picture, how the yeah. church is preparing us in these seasons to live the life of Christ and get used to his life. It's only his life that's salvific, right? It's only his life mm -hmm. that's going to save us. So the liturgical year allows us to live his life and get used to that year after year as our life. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. My next question here. So wasn't Jesus baptized in Luke chapter three? What, what is this baptism that is yet okay. to come? Annie, I know, you know, the answer to that. I know a lot of our listeners know the answer. Yeah. But there's, so obviously Jesus talking about the baptism of his passion, right? right? His, 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 his passion, his cross and resurrection. We get that again also, by the way, in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, where James and John are debating, can they sit one at the right, one at the left? And Jesus says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? And they said, we are. Well, what baptism you have to be baptized with is, is the passion, right? Um, and so, but why is it that we can then talk about baptism in these two ways, which I think is the most important yeah. point for us catechetically, because we don't normally think about baptism in terms of being crucified. Right. 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 We go yeah. to baptisms and we go, Oh, they're so cute. Cute Johnny. And yeah. it drives me crazy. I, I, you know, I have a policy if I'm in a church and there's a priest baptizing a child, I always stop and participate because not because I'm a priest, but because I'm a Christian. And, and we have a new member of the church being incorporated into the body of Christ. And sadly, a lot of times, a lot of unfortunate, sometimes I've seen priests and deacons and so forth don't know what to do with baptism. Because it's kind of one of those uncomfortable moments in which you have these families come to church, they don't usually come to church, and they come and they want to baptize Johnny. And a lot of people that come for the baptism aren't usually going to church. And so it becomes this kind of cute thing where people are kind of unsure about being there because they're not used to being in church. And ceremonially, it's a little difficult. You got the priest and a bunch of heathens, right? <laughs> you see this sometimes in funerals. <laughs> and a pagan where, baby. What's that? And a pagan baby. A pagan, exactly. <laughs> and so priests start to make jokes about it. And they start to insert jokes into the baptismal service. Well, there's nothing j funny about the baptismal service. And we and it, it's, it's highlighted by that we get these kind of statues of fat angels that we give, that, that we dress the kid in white, we take the pictures. It's such a nice ceremony. 
Well, what is going on in baptism? What happens when a person is baptized? The word baptized, to baptize means, it comes from the Greek word baptizane, which means to plunge, yeah? And here, when the church says we baptize, it is we, we are plunging into Christ, ultimately plunging into Christ's Passover, his passion, death, and resurrection. Take a look at Romans chapter 6 with me, one of my favorite oh, yes. passages of the New Testament by St. Paul. In the Byzantine tradition, this passage is proclaimed at every every uh, at every baptism. I'm just going to turn around, Annie, to see if my catechism of the Catholic Church is handy right here in my bookshelf. And there, lo and behold, it is. While you're turning to Romans chapter 6, I am also going to turn my catechism to page 312. If you're there, I'm going to give you a, a paragraph number also. Um, and uh, it's not going to be exactly 312, but it's close there. Paragraph 1214. Okay. Do you have your catechism handy there? I do. You chastised me once for not having it during one of these. And I promptly went upstairs, took it off the shelf upstairs, and put it on my shelf down here. Yes, you showed your catechism handy. Very nice document. 1213. Uh, paragraph 1214. Oh, 14. Okay. I'm there. 1214. Okay. This sacrament is called baptism after the central rite by which it is carried out. To baptize Greek, baptizane, means to plunge or immerse. See, Father Hezekiah wasn't making it up. I was just stealing the words of the catechism. I can confirm. The plunge into the water symbolizes the catechumen's burial into Christ's death, from which he rises up by resurrection with him as a new creature. Okay, so, and here's the thing, is that the church, um, this is why the church prefers baptism by immersion, mm -hmm. by dunking the child underneath the water and covering the child over in this sacramental tomb, and why water in the sacramental tomb? Well, you got to go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, well, there's been multiple times in which there has been contact between man and water and salvation. Yes. And so the, you got to have a biblical vision of people being plunged into the waters of the Jordan River, reminding us of the crossing of the Jordan River, at which time Israel put Egypt and the four years of wandering that is behind them and entered into the promised land. Yeah, having died to their sin during the 40 days or 40, 40 years of wandering and entering the promised land where they were behold the face of God and come to life in him. But wait a minute, that's not the only time we crossed water in the Old Testament. We also crossed water at the Red Sea in which Pharaoh and the Egyptians were buried in the sea and Israel came forth to the to the presence of God. Wait a minute, that's not the only time someone died in the waters in the Old Testament. Noah and his family crossed through the waters, and the sinful people at the time of the flood died and were buried in those waters. Noah coming forth to sacrifice to God, to renew his life in the, in, in, in the presence of the Lord. No, that's not the only time we remember water and kind of death and life and so forth in the Bible. What about the creation story itself in which the spirit of God hovered over the abyss and the Lord parted the waters, which formerly had been, right, it says in darkness, parted the waters and 
brought forth land and formed man in his image and likeness. Okay, so we have all these Old Testament images in which we learn about the nature of baptism. This is what happens in baptism. There's nothing funny about it. Yeah, what happens in baptism? A person dies to their old self that they might re, re, be restored in the life of God, right? What took place at the fall is finalized in baptism. It's destroyed in baptism. It's buried in baptism that we might come to a newness of life in God, be stored in his image and after his likeness, which is what Romans chapter 6 says. What shall we do? say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died distance still live it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, plunged into Christ Jesus, were plunged into his death? We were buried, therefore, with, by, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Listen to St. John of Damascus. It's a little bit of a long quote, but well worth it. Listen to St. John Damascene. A first baptism was by the flood for the cutting away of sin. A second baptism was by the sea and the cloud because the cloud is a symbol of the spirit while the sea is a symbol of the water. That's the crossing of the Red Sea. A third baptism is that of the law because every unclean person washed himself with water and was washed his, has washed his garments and then entered the camp. A fourth is that of John the Baptist, which was an introductory baptism leading those thus baptized in repentance so that they might believe in Christ. I indeed, he says, baptize you in water, but he that will come after me, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. John purified with water in advance to prepare for the Spirit. A fifth baptism is the Lord's baptism with which he was baptized. He was not baptized because he needed purification. He was baptized so that by making my purification his own, he might crush the heads of the dragons in the waters. Very interesting. The wow. dragons in the waters is a very uh, uh, is a patristic way of speaking of the dominion of the devil in the tomb. Wow. Yeah. He who dragged Pharaoh down to his death, not because of water, but because of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Crush the heads of the dragons in the waters, wash away the sin and bury all of the old Adam in the water, sanctifying the baptizer fulfill the law, reveal the mystery of the Trinity, and may come for us a model and example for the reception of baptism. We also are baptized with the perfect baptism of the Lord, which is by water and the Spirit. It is said that Christ baptizes in fire because he poured out the grace of the Spirit on the holy apostles in the form of tongues of fire, which is what he talks about here in our gospel text, Annie. The mm -hmm. Lord says, John, indeed, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire not many days from now. And it may also be that he is said to baptize with fire because of the chastising baptism of the fire to come. A sixth baptism is that which is by repentance and tears, which is truly painful. A seventh baptism is that which is by blood and martyrdom. Christ also was also baptized with this for our sake. This baptism is exceedingly sublime and blessed because second stains do not pollute it. An eighth baptism which is the last is not saving while being destructive of evil since evil and sin no longer hold power. It chastises endlessly. And that's a, the, the, the wow. speaking of the book of revelation. So there you have it. So our understanding of baptism needs to grow. Our vision of what happens in baptism needs to grow. And we need to understand that what Jesus did in the Jordan river was a sacramental entrance 
into what he was going to do on, on Golgotha. Yeah. And so our baptism also is a sacramental entrance into what he accomplished in the Jordan river and which was of the, is the same divine act, the same divine activity by which he put the sinful man to death, the old man to death upon the cross and gave us the possibility of the newness of life and resurrection. Which is something that we'll, I think, see in in the epistle. But I've got one more question before we get to the epistle, if that's okay. All right, go ahead. Amy. I mean, this I mean, is yeah. so different than the Jesus that you really want to think about, right? I mean, he's talking about swords and divisions and setting fire to the earth. I mean, what are we to make of that? Yes, on earth, peace and good will. Good, good yeah, this is men. not hippie yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Where yeah, are the Birkenstocks? So there's, there's, there seems to be a contradiction here between the peace-loving Jesus, which he did preach, preach peace, did yeah. he not? And what it sounds like a more, you know, crazed radical, <laughs> like the one who turned over the tables in the temple. Yeah. Yes. St. John Chrysostom says, what sort of peace is it that Jesus brings? And what kind of peace is it that the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. If Jesus did not come to bring peace, then why did all the prophets publish peace as good news? Because this more, this, this more than anything else is peace. When the disease is removed, when the cancer is cut away with the sword. Yeah, St. Apollinarius, a second, uh, second century martyr, says the believer's disagreement, and this goes back to Jeremiah, it also goes back to what I was saying earlier about how tempting it is to kind of get along with everybody, and this becomes Christianity. No, St. Apollinarius says this, the unbeliever's disagreement with the believer will produce a distinction since the unbelievers think that peacemaking is their duty, the unbelievers think that peacemaking is their duty, they say, quote, do not believe that it is best in all circumstances to be saved, for you owe it as a duty to be at peace with all. He goes on. But there are some that preparing for battle against our peace. There are some that are preparing for battle against our peace. And you should not let their false peace rule. For the only true concord, the only true peace is to be united with God. This above all is peace. So there's a difference, St. John Chrysostom and others say, between the peace of the world and the peace of the Lord. Yeah. Peace I have come to bring you, the Lord says, not as the world knows peace, right? John chapter 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. Yeah. Right? There's a fundamental peace is not calmness, which is which is the big mistake, right? If you're at peace, you're a calm, calm person. <laughs> Father Hezekiah is not a very calm person. Never at peace. Okay? <laughs> I don't think turning over tables in the middle of the temple is considered to be a very calm act. Okay. So, so peace and calmness are not the same thing. No. And there is a peace 
which man has, which is the proper ordering of all of our, of our, of our life. And that proper ordering can only happen if it is properly ordered to its proper end, which is communion with God. And if it is not, then any concord, any so-called peace among the parts, which do not orient to its proper end, is not peace at all, but is destruction, is disharmony, even though it might present itself as harmony. Hmm. Does that make sense? So, so go back to the passage now in Luke, and in light of what the fathers are telling us, Jesus said to the disciples, I've come to set fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already ablaze. There is a baptism over which I'm to be baptized and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, not, not in an earthly way. I tell you, right? Because that's what's going on, right? Here are the apostles are around him. All the Pharisees are around him. All these guys are around him. Like, he's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to the throne city. He's going to kick the rear ends out of the, out, of, out of the Romans and get them out of here and give us our life back. Hmm. Jesus says, No. That's not the peace I've come to bring. I've not come to bring, be judge and arbiter in the previous passage last week in an earthly way. No. No, I tell you, but rather division. For now on, a household of five will be divided. That brother over there telling the Pharisees, you think you're going to be friends with him? He's going to turn you in. Three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son, a son against his father, a mother against his daughter, and a daughter against his mother. A, a mother-in-law against her and so forth. Okay. Did you, did you see this? And, uh, and, and then the, the passages, the, this, well, this whole theme is going to then continue in our epistle text, of course, when we start talking ab about the, the cross of Christ, which again, like baptism, I think is misunderstood by many in which Jesus endures much what Jeremiah endured. We, we tend to whitewash the cross, right? It's so nice. We put it up in our homes and we, we 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 put it on around our neck and we we make it pretty and we put little doves on the top of it and so forth like that my brothers and sisters the cross was the most horrific symbol of persecution and death any it was the worst thing the romans could come up with was to crucify somebody it is a symbol of the worst so we need to remember that as a background to see what Jesus endured for our sake in order to understand what he accomplished by enduring it. Yeah. And of course, this is going to run across all of us now because the cross stands before us. No one will rise from the dead who not first died with Christ. Jesus heading to the, heading to the cross. His apostles are going to go there with them or they're not going to go with them. And he's, try, he's trying to help them as best he possibly can to get there. Yeah. Well, that takes us to the epistle hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 4. let's take a look at it brothers and sisters since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us while keeping our eyes fixed on jesus the leader and perfecter of faith for the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider how he endured such opposition from sinners in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. 
Yeah, and, and um, Annie, then we can then go back to what we were saying earlier, and that is Jeremiah, the cross of Christ, um, the, the nativity, baptism, our own, what the church is going through, the early church is going through, and the application to our lives, all the same divine activity, the same divine reality of the setting aside of sin, the putting to death of the old man, the burial in the waters of baptism, so we might free to ascend to the heavenly Jerusalem, right, with Jesus, who is about to go to the cross. And notice what St. Paul says here in his epistle to the Hebrews, that we have all these witnesses around us, right? Who are the witnesses? Jeremiah. Yeah. Is Jeremiah not one of these witnesses running the race, no matter what? And the ultimate, the ultimate one is running the race in front of us. Jesus, who did the same thing, right? For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. So there's the thing that I want to point out. He, because he kept his eye upon the goal, and what is the joy he has before him is communion with his father, right? Because he didn't allow his love for his father to die in his heart like Adam did, the cross becomes salvific. It transforms everything in this life, not only the cross, but everything in our life by the purpose for which we endure it yeah and so so for the sake of the joy why was jesus crucified yes they crucified him yes they wanted to murder him let's be let's let's just say it out there the jews wanted to murder him the pharisees wanted to murder him those around him wanted to murder him just like they wanted to murder jeremiah because he was telling the truth about what was going around going on around him he was calling them out, right? Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Sadducees. Woe to you, lawyers. You fools, Jesus says. You fools. I walked on water. I trans. I I I, I multiply loaves and uh, 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 um, uh, loaves and fishes and so on. I changed water into wine. You fools. What are you looking for? And 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 now, uh uh. He invites us with him to say, for the sake of the joy that lay before me endured the cross, therefore run with him for the sake of the joy that lies before you. Endure the sufferings which you are going to endure in this life, church going out into a pagan world in the early church Pentecost season. Endure now the sufferings which you will endure Christians, Catholics, being accused of so many things, being despised upon this earth. For in this, you stand with Christ, who, though they tried to murder him, gave the, the greatest gift of all to mankind, the, the possibility of life. In your struggle against sin, then, as Christ struggled in his passion, he has resisted to death, but you have not yet. You must die to your old self. And until you do, you will not discover the newness life which Christ has come to give us. Run, my brothers and sisters, run and run hard to attain the one thing necessary. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, 
including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities. And sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.